Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. What we're going to end up with is a 21st century version of an extractive economy uh, versus one that is more where, to your point, the value starts to be retained in the communities that are providing that value, and it's also more widely shared. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachia meets world. We're back another week. It's Will. And Neil. How goes it? It goes well. We're getting into the summer months here, man. Nice and hot. I like it hot. Yeah, I know. I know you do. You just uh, don't get to experience it a lot. Yeah, it's a good week out of the year. <laughs> it's been a little bit mild here. It's been perfect, actually. For someone who's been hot for a few decades, you see Pat Sajak retired? No, I didn't, man. You know, it's not Appalachian news, so I didn't. Uh, that's more like <laughs> national stuff. It's out there on the West Coast. I feel like that's big news. I think all of us were raised on Wheel of Fortune. It's been yeah, I think so. Too. I, I should have known that. Did Vanna go out too? I don't know. I mean, she but can't do the show without him. They have to replace both, I guess. You think you could do Wheel of Fortune? Do I think I could? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> It'd be fantastic. Who do you think they'll get as the as the host? You got any um, recommendations? I don't know. Uh, you know, there's some people out there. I don't know who would fill those shoes appropriately, though. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, I was trying to think about it. I don't know. I guess there's always Ryan Seacrest. He hosts everything else. Yeah, that's uh, true. Aaron Rodgers, he wanted to do Jeopardy. He, he didn't get that hosting gig. Maybe he, maybe after this year with the Jets, he'll want to do Will of Fortune. <laughs> yeah, maybe the, the time in New York will serve him well, and he'll take on his – acting role a little bit more and become a better host because he's not going to win any football games. <laughs> I'd say that's a good recommendation, but, you know, there is another recently retired quarterback that might fit the bill even better. Oh, your boy. Yeah. I mean, if you want, if you want people to watch, I mean, that's the guy <laughs> you get, right? You think they can pull Tom Brady? I don't think there's enough money in the world to get Tom Brady to do host Wheel of Fortune. I could be wrong. We'll see. <laughs> what else, man? You got any app news since you're all over the world of Wheel of Fortune? Yeah, I got some app news. I uh, just got a few little items since we have a got a long episode tonight and a really good episode. So I wanted to mention a couple things, though. The chart book, the ARC, Appalachian Regional Convention chart book, which is its annual 
book of data on the Appalachian region just came out, continuing to make strides in education, economics, but still a little behind in poverty and aging and internet access. Some of those issues still persist, persist, but I just wanted to mention that the chart book is out. If you're interested in that data, we'll post it in the show notes. Uh, There was an article I wanted to to put in the show notes since we talked about Aaron Rodgers, but there was an article in the Yellow Hammer. It's an Alabama newspaper about Nick Saban's roots in Appalachia. We're going to post it in the show notes. It's just a good article about how growing up in Appalachia for him in West Virginia, being in Alabama, being in the Appalachian part of Alabama, how he sees people there and how they are service-oriented and just – just about his roots and about Appalachian, Alabama as well, how they haven't always identified as Appalachians, but they're starting to better understand why it's so important to be in the region. So we'll post that story. I thought it was a neat little story. Another story that I wanted to post, Nonprofit Quarterly had, has a series of stories called Eradicating Roar Poverty, the Power of Cooperation, a series with six CDFIs, and one of those CDFIs We've had on the show the CEO, Jim King of FAHI. He has an article in there with another executive director of a CDFI, Crystal Cornelius. But it's reshaping the ideas of rural America, stories from our communities. It's a series of four articles, but that's one of those articles that Jim King, who we've had on the show, helped write. It's all about the rural landscape. And uh, cooperation within the rural landscape. So I wanted to mention that story. One last little piece of news item that also has to do with rural on inside philanthropy. It, it's called Rural to Rural Partnerships, Leveling the Playing Field to Secure Federal Funding. It talks about the importance of building capacity in rural areas. I wanted to mention that article one because it's a really good article to read. Uh, it's got some examples in regards to rural and some ideas around how philanthropy should change in regards to funding rural and leveling that playing field. But also wanted to mention it in regards to the person that we're having on tonight, Mr. Tony Pippa, who is more like a rural evangelist. He works at the Brookings Institute, but he focuses his time on reshaping or reimagining the rural landscape. Yeah, I'm very interested to talk to, to Tony. Should be a great conversation and an opportunity for the both of us to learn a little bit more about everything he does. He also has a podcast, Reimagining Rural, that we want to talk about and focus on during the episode. So since, like I mentioned before, Neil, it's such a long episode. you just want to get right into it? Absolutely. Let's do it. episode today we have a special guest mr tony pippa born and raised in appalachia now residing in washington dc having grown up in eastern pennsylvania in the heart of anthracite coal country he's currently a senior fellow at the center for sustainable development at the brookings institute and a longtime evangelist for rural communities 
As such, he launched and leads the Reimagining Rural Policy Initiative, which seeks to modernize and transform U.S. policy to enable equitable and sustainable development across rural America. He also hosts the Reimagining Rural podcast, which focuses on rural towns, which we'll get into as part of our conversation. His professional career spans three decades of executive leadership in the philanthropic and public sectors, addressing everything from poverty and, and advancing inclusive economic development in the U.S. and globally. And we're honored and very appreciative for his time today. So, Tony, thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. First things first, we want to ask you a quick question. An Appalachian yourself, like most Appalachians, are big on history, big on tradition. Our family's big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually this gigantic spread of appetizers bigger than the meals. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Well, I got to say, so uh, one of the things that we do, um, especially when I would go back to where I grew up in anthracite coal country, one of the favorite things that we would uh, always have on the table is um, some garlic ring bologna with some cheese and saltine crackers. We have uh, handed that down, that tradition. My daughter loves it. She's all into it. And, you know, we would get it from a local um, a local store, farm farm market kind of that, that actually created that garlic ring bologna. You can get it also with cheese in it, but you can only get it like near where I grew up. Like that's the only place that we know to get it. Um, so nice. it's always just a, a reminder of home, actually. Uh, nice, nice. We, we appreciate I love, that. Dude. I love it. We have never had that on any of our episodes. So that is the first time anybody has ever mentioned ring bologna. But I think I'm bringing it to our next family dinner. <laughs> there you go. You can go to Mosser's outside of Ellysburg, Pennsylvania, and you can get all to your heart's content. <laughs> I also appreciate that you, you passed it down to your daughter. Our our, our dad, yeah. unfortunately, passed down souse meat to us. He never, he never told us what it was. <laughs> now that we have that question out of the way, like I, like I mentioned in the intro, we'll get into the podcast, which... First, uh, we kind of just wanted to dive into federal policy, which is your focus area in regards to rural federal policy. When I think of federal policy and federal programs, I often think of cereal. Back in the day when there were only like three kinds of cereal and they all tasted different, you knew what to expect and you knew what you were getting. You knew where to go get it. You knew what was in it. But now you go to the grocery store, there are 500 boxes of cereal. They all look alike. You have no idea what's on the shelf. You don't know the ingredients. You don't know how it's made. It, and that's the way that I almost look at federal programs today. I know you have, you've, you've posted this chart of over 400 programs, which is an insane infographic that you have. But can you just talk about like your ideas around overhauling the federal policy or how how much I don't know if mess is the right word, but just how convoluted it is today. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. We call it the spaghetti chart because it just looks like uh, a whole big bowl of spaghetti. Because what we did was 
you know, trying to play kind of like a forensic accountant, okay? You know, where does the money come from in Washington, D.C.? What's it supposed to be for? And, and where does it go to? And when you just start drawing all those lines, there's, you know, when you look at like broadband, so just take broadband pro programs, programs that a rural community could access to either get broadband access or broadband adoption. There's like upwards of 90 programs across the federal government that can, that can help you with that in some shape or form. So for a community to figure out, okay, which one is the thing that we need, because these are what our needs are, and this kind of fits our situation, that can be a real challenge. And the way I think about it, and you, you talked about policy, you know, we don't really have a federal policy. We got a bunch of federal programs. And what I mean by that is there's no kind of coherent, there's, there's no coherent sense of Here's what a here's what a community would want in place. Here's the essential pieces that a co community wants in place, and here is how we think rural communities can can thrive in the 21st century with the kind of economy that we have or the kind of economies that we have, and uh, and here's how the federal government and the state governments are going to best support that. We don't kind of have the coherent vision. Um, so on one hand, that all those programs, they're kind of a good thing because in some respects, it's somebody trying to be responsive to a need, right? A congressional member or set of congressional members heard from their constituents that we need X for Y. So they somehow in legislation got it, got it placed in there and they got a program built up. But over time, it's kind of like the barnacles on a ship, right? Over time... You just keep adding and adding and adding. It becomes so convoluted and some things are redundant and uh, some things have, you know, they all ask for different kinds of requirements and they all have their own application processes and they're all in different parts of the government as well. So at the end of the day, it just becomes really challenging for someone from a rural community to figure out, okay, here's what I could best make use of. Here's what fits me best. And um, here's where I could uh, here's where I could be successful if I were to put in an application or, or or try to access that money. The the flip side of that the problem is just creates a ton of barriers. Yeah. And so a lot of communities are starved for investment because they're not accessing that money, even if it could really help them. When you talk about community economic development, capital is the catalyst, right? And so when you're not accessing that capital, you're kind of stuck. Like you mentioned, a lot of, a lot of with, the, with these federal programs, what we're talking about is, is money. But yeah. when it comes down to it, no one knows your community like you, the locals that are in that community. Aside from the federal funding, you know, we've seen a shift, call it a paradigm shift if, if you want, but in the philanthropic community and philanthropic funding from funding really from the ground up or letting the local leaders kind of drive where the funding or where the change should come from. One, one prime example is the foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky is doing a really good job of allowing the community to assist where the money should be going, the local leaders. Um, with your philanthropic expertise, have you seen this shift and is this something that the federal policy should also implement? Yeah, so this is exactly, I mean, so first off, rural America is really diverse, right? It's diverse 
economically, it's diverse geographically, it's diverse racially. So you're not going to have a one-size-fits-all solution that's going to come from some policy wonk in D.C. like me and it's going to fit for all the different needs and context that a rural community has. And really, uh, when you see what's successful in community and economic development, it, it is led by the community, owned by the community. It fits the community's history. It fits the community's assets. It fits the community's um, relationships, the people that 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 live there and and uh, and work there and thrive there. And so that's what any funder, whether it be a philanthropic funder or a public funder, really ought to be situated at, is to be the support for kind of locally led, locally owned solutions. Now there's enabling environments and there's also pressures from the outside, right? So there's sometimes there's policy solutions that can make things um, more propitious for those local people to be successful. Uh, and we want to be sensitive to those. But when it's really about the investment and it's about the money itself, it really does need to be supporting at the local level. And I agree wholeheartedly um, with the foundation and their approach, and they've been doing some groundbreaking things. You can see other community foundations in other parts of the country uh, do that well. You also see some family foundations. Some of them are very local. Some of them are regional. I can look at foundations as diverse as the Ford Family Foundation out in Oregon to the TLL Temple Foundation in East Texas, and then, you know, closer to home to Appalachia, the Claude Benedum Foundation in, in uh, Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia. They're focused on sort of supporting that local, that local vision and the capacity and the human capital at the local level to kind of make things happen. And it is one thing that I think is also a real opportunity is for philanthropy and public funds and, and federal policy to work together. That is something that we're actually is a missed opportunity right now. And I think that's something that could be strengthened on both sides. When you have the community foundation doing the work that it's doing, it could really leverage that that private funding can really leverage, you know, public funding at a larger scale. Um, and having the two reinforce each other is a real opportunity throughout uh, throughout rural America. That's an excellent point. You know, you mentioned in that answer the, 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 the challenges, but also the similarities, the opportunities, and the diversity that's in rural America. Why we call our podcast Appalachia Meets World, we, we wanted to make a point to not only visit Appalachia, but visit regions outside of Appalachia to compare cultures. And one of the things that we found is that we're not all that different. There are a lot of right. similarities, especially when it comes to challenges. You can even talk about the inner cities of urban areas. They have very similar challenges to the rural areas. The solutions look very different based on the history, based on the assets, unique assets of a local community. That being said, you know, you argue while this is true, federal policy is not the same. It almost forgets about rural altogether when you're talking about policy. Can you speak to that a little bit of how the policy from the federal level should adapt to some of these similarities in regards to the challenges? Yeah, so I do think 
and we can even when we start talking about the podcast, we can talk about like how some of those themes run throughout very different places in rural America. But in general, I think there are a couple of things I would say that I'm finding when I do my visits or I do my research across rural America. One is uh, that there's the the capacity of local governments is just fundamentally different in rural places than it is in suburban or urban places. It's not going to be as professionalized. Um, you're going to have volunteer elected officials sometimes. Sometimes they're part-time. You know, typically in a rural place, one person's doing many different things. They might they might play several different roles. And the amount of staff that they might have in a rural local government is just going to be different in terms of scale than they're going to have in a in a suburban and urban place. And so I think fundamentally right now, our federal government doesn't realize that that well. Like the programs that are set up and the way in which they're designed, they really assume uh, a certain level of uh, human capacity and uh, even, you know, access to financial um, uh, resources like the match requirements that are put on federal government can be an immediate barrier for many, many rural governments because they just don't have access. There's just disproportionately lower access to philanthropic funding in rural places, as well as they're more fiscally constrained. Uh, so there are things that the federal government can be doing, even though there's a lot of diversity across rural America, there's ways in which the federal government can be creating more flexible money so that it can be used for staffing, can be used for organizational development, can be used for partnerships and coordination. A lot of federal funding right now is focused on widgets, focused on things, focused on you know, supporting physical things. And so it doesn't have that kind of what I call um, investment in the software of economic or community development. Like the, the people and the thinking and the planning and the partnerships that are actually going to make those things happen. So it can be a lot more flexible and could be used more for human capital or organizational development rather than just that piece of infrastructure like that piece of broadband or that water sewer pipe or that road or that community facility. Um, I, I think that would be... Uh, that would be a big improvement. And then I have to then I have to say, once communities are ready, we got to think bigger. Like right now, we've got these 400 programs, but they're all little drips and drabs of money, right? We got to think bitter, bigger and we got to think multi-year and we got to understand that for some communities to kind of retool their economy or even just reimagine what their social and economic structure is going to look like, it's going to take time. And it's going to take a certain on-ramp. And that's just not a one-year grant for a water sewer pipe. That's kind of a, a set of resources, what, what you might even think of like a block grant that then goes yeah. through multiple years. And it's at a level that's meaningful, that's going to attract other investments, going to attract private investments, going to attract new entrepreneurs from the local places who, who want to create businesses. It's going to help create like a, a, a critical mass of that as well. Yeah, I would I would vehemently argue that a lot of the funding from those 400 programs doesn't actually make it to the rural 
community. Yeah. You know, and, and as you know, in, in Appalachia, in the rural areas, we've long been based on extractive, extractive yes. industries, whether it be coal, whether it be steel, timber, et cetera, and little wealth coming back to the local communities. There was a report recently, however, by Invest Appalachia that talked about climate, climate resiliency. And it states that, you know, there's a major opportunity for the rural areas in the region to increase their population, to diversify. We're seeing a shift in the energy sector in regards to this in rural areas. How can rural areas ensure as this shift takes place that the money is making it to rural areas and to the local economies rather than being sent elsewhere or extracted out even? So this is a, a clear and present issue right now. And it's not one we're having a huge conversation about as a nation that we ought to be because rural is going to play a real central role in the shift to a clean energy economy. And there's a lot of incentives. There's a lot of private investment. And now with the federal government, there's a lot of public investment for us to be able to make that shift. Um, but if we're not careful, what we're going to end up with is a 21st century version of an extractive economy uh, versus one that is more where, to your point, the value starts to be retained in the communities that are providing that value. And it's also more widely shared. It's not just one person that's benefiting, but 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 we're trying to get those benefits to, to more people at once. There's going to be competition for where solar goes in, for where wind goes in. You could imagine that that competition is going to, you know, you're going to have localities or states give a lot of incentives to attract those things. The problem is that that can undermine kind of the sustainability of those local governments that we were just talking about moving forward if it's not done well or done smartly. I, there are a few things that, you know, I see as good signals, like the Department of Energy from some of the programs uh, that they're implementing through the Inflation Reduction Act. They're asking for community benefits agreements uh, be part of the plans for and applications uh, to access those resources. Presumably, that means the community is coming together to say, okay, how do we make sure we get what we need to be healthy and thrive and retain value uh, and share those benefits widely? But it also goes to kind of ownership, ownership structures. Uh, it goes to the extent to which businesses that are involved are locally owned versus coming in and investing from the outside. And so getting that mix right and coming up with economic development strategies that are seeking to ensure that the wealth and the value are retained is going to be really important. And there are policy levers that we could pursue that we're just not necessarily always talking about or, or, or thinking about. Appalachia has always been, a lot of the smaller communities, smaller rural communities in general is all, have always been risk adverse. I feel like a lot of the policy that you see, even in regards to the rural funders network that just got established when they are coming into the federal organizations are coming into communities to connect to local organizations, but also to connect to the funding. I feel like part of what that is doing is kind of mitigating the risk uh -huh. not only on the local side, but also on the federal side. How can we help to, I guess, ensure that we can also mitigate the risk on the private side 
to, to, to build these public-private partnerships within local rural communities? Well, part of that is actually just, um, again, having some resources or time or people, like you were talking about through the Rural Partners Network, to make sure that all the different parties are working together from the get-go and that their interests are on the table and that the ways in which the capital is put together and the ways in which deals are put together kind of even out the risk and reward for the different partners that uh, that are coming together. I do think that there's a lot of incentives, frankly, in the Inflation Reduction Act and even in the Chips and Science Act that private sector are seeing as really positive and as seeing as both an incentive to be more geographically diverse and so be looking at smaller places in different areas uh, than they might have been. Uh, as well as seeing the mitigation of risk because they're able to access either some tax credits or um, even some public funds that might make it less uh, expensive for them to be able to get the capital that they need to, you know, potentially do a manufacturing or potentially do, you know, solar or, or wind. And so I think that there are policy, there's policies, there's good policy in place now that over the next five to 10 years, as it's implemented, ought to be really positive. I think what's important is to ensure that we're also, that we're getting though the structure of those deals right. And we're, the, the, the revenue coming in for local governments is going to be enough to have the kinds of public services that are gonna be necessary to sustain that community over time whether it's education, whether it's you know public safety, whether it's sewer and water, those kinds of things, as well as to, to find ways at least in which economic opportunity, even business opportunity is also not just geared toward one or two people in the community, but are, is more widely available throughout the community. Um, and I think what we also need to do is create this virtuous cycle of people seeing opportunity in their places. So they're interested in staying or they, they're, they've got a sense of a future in the places in which they're at as well. I think in a local community, and you mentioned this word collaboration, think in a local community, a smaller rural community, that's really important. Do you think smaller communities have that advantage over urban communities in regards to collaboration? So smaller communities have less bureaucracy, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, like we were talking about a little earlier, one person might do several different things. And, you know, that's one of the things I tell funders, actually. I tell philanthropic funders, I say, look, if you want to create, you know, pretty deep impact pretty quickly, if you're talking to the right people in a rural community, you can get stuff done pretty quickly, <laughs> right? Like you can cut through a lot of stuff. One of the great advantages of living where I live versus where you guys live. If you want to get things done, you find the right person and you can get almost anything done, no matter what the obstacle is in front of you. So I'm glad you guys spoke about that. But um, I agree wholeheartedly. It's a, it's, it's a real situation. It's a real advantage. It's a real advantage. Uh, yeah, for sure. There's some disadvantages. Everybody knows everybody's business, but <laughs> right, 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 right. That was that's that's uh, the other side of it. But 
in the grand scheme of things, uh, as far as being able to get things done, the challenges that you face in uh, rural America are certainly different than the challenges that, that you two face in yeah. in uh, your neck of the woods. Yeah, um, you can you can walk I, into I an urban place, and boy, you can come up with two or three different kind of you know governance entities that are going to have to you know you have to wrangle together and get talking to each other and and get them okay with each other and then you can start to work on some stuff you know before we talk about specifically the the podcast you know you have one foot uh maybe two feet in the rural area but you also live in dc when it comes to federal policy especially do you see that urban rural divide or i won't even call it urban rural maybe it's just washington rural divide when we're talking about federal policy but how how is the voice the rural voice being represented in washington when it comes to policy well one of i'll i'll say a couple of different things about that the first thing i'll say is one of the first things that really frustrates me is that whenever you talk about rural or rural urban in dc we're always focusing on the politics first like who's voting for whom, who's lost whom as vote. And, you know, sure, that's D.C. and that's kind of what makes D.C. run, which is fine. Um, but I worry that what happens is then it becomes around, well, we just need to talk to people differently or it's about messaging or it's about political strategy. What we don't have is a really robust conversation around policy, actually. And a lot of that policy often just gets caught up in farm policy. So the farm bill is underway right now, right? At once every five years, big bill with a lot of appropriations, a lot that affects agriculture and the, the subsidies and, and other things for commodities through agriculture. Also nutrition programs. So food stamps, SNAP um, are part of that. But there's also a title there for rural development. That's, you know, that's supposed to be for water and sewer and electricity and broadband and things. You don't hear much conversation about those things within the conversation of the farm bill, just completely overshadowed by other issues. And so that's one of the things is that when we talk about this rural urban, we're almost always talking about politics and we really are about policy, about the actual strategy of what it is we're trying to accomplish. And that's frustrating. Now, having said that, I will say that my first report on policy, the one that had that massive messy chart in it came out about two and a half years ago I, I and this is anecdotal this is not like something i can point to you know with any kind of indicator so to speak but i think that there has certainly been an uptick in interest around those policy issues amongst congressional members in the executive branch that i can feel over the last nine months, there's building momentum for a focus on what would it mean to really enable and support rural communities in different parts of the U.S. There's just a, you know, there's more of a recognition about the capacity constraints that rural America faces. There's more of a recognition of the opportunities that are coming from some of the shifts in the economy. And there's some recognition that we have to get that right. Now, it's there's a lot, you know, you're in Washington, D.C., there's like an issue a second, right? There's just, 
everything that happens in the world also has some impact on the U.S. and its interests in the world. So it's certainly jockeying with lots of other things. But I will say that, at least from my perspective, there's some growing momentum and there's a little bit of a of a of a point building to to where you know I think we're going to continue to have more and more conversation about the issues that really affect rural America um, on a on a regular basis. That's great to hear, and that kind of I guess gets us to actually talking about the the podcast. You know, I feel like your podcast, much like our podcast, you know, we want to give a platform to Appalachians for Appalachians to actually talk about Appalachia instead of someone from the outside talking about the region. So your your podcast kind of gives that platform to small local communities. You know, you you represent, I think this was a, a purpose on purpose, the diversity within rural America among the yeah. communities that you chose to focus on. A couple of the ones in Appalachia were Shimokin, Pennsylvania, which is where you're from. Also, Thomas and Davis, West Virginia, all varying different kinds of communities. It's an excellent podcast for any of the listeners out there. Definitely check it out. But I've listened to it actually multiple times because I heard a lot from how I grew up, my community of how they are trying to or are currently reinventing themselves. A lot of the things that came out through your episodes were some of the things you already talked about around capacity, around leadership, how important leadership is for a local community, around beauty or beautification of a town. One thing that I kind of heard throughout the episodes that actually, I think, jump-started where Neil and I are from in Pineville, Kentucky, they have this thing called the Pineville Gala every year where they celebrate their own community. They celebrate the successes. I think that's really important for small communities to not just talk about the challenges, but to celebrate the successes that you've had in the community. When people talk to us about Appalachia, the first thing they want to talk about is the challenges. And we always flip the script and talk about the opportunities first. Do you want to talk about your podcast a little bit? Yeah, well, thanks for that. And and actually, let me just start there because that's exactly, that was the simple kernel of idea of the idea behind the podcast, which was, look, so my whole initiative is around trying to make federal policy more effective and have more impact in rural America. And I knew that there are places out there where positive things are happening in their communities. And so my sense is we got to understand how positive things happen in those communities if we're going to have any kind of policy that scales it up to more than just a few towns. And so we need to hear from the people themselves who are kind of making those things happen in their community what's important about making something positive, building positive momentum or creating positive economic change in their communities so that then we can understand, okay, here's where our policy is falling short, or here's where we could do things that would actually just make it, you know, exponentially have more impact. And honestly, you know, I feel like, uh, and I work at a think tank, we tend to always feel like, you know, we can represent kind of what the situation is in particular places. That's kind of our wor- world. We're supposed to be a little bit of a translator, learn what's going on in a particular 
whether it's within a within a government or within any other kind of entity, and then translate it back to others and say, here's where we could meet their needs better. But I feel like, you know, the folks who are making that change happen, they're going to explain their situations and their challenges way more articulately and more compellingly than I can. I would be talking to congressional members or congressional staff or people who work in, you know, USDA or the Economic Development Administration or other parts of the federal government. And I would be talking about what we were just talking about, capacity or sense of identity and pride and that sense of history and how important that is in a particular, in a small community, how quality of life and beauty are important to an economic development strategy. And, you know, you would use these pretty words and their eyebrows would kind of go up and they go, I kind of know what you're talking about, but what does that really mean? So I thought, well, I'll just let people tell us what that really means and why they do what they're doing and how that's translating into change. You know, those stories have been really compelling and they're, they've surprised me. Like I, I, I went in with a, you know, with a certain set of questions that I was asking and things that I thought I was going to find. And some of those things I did find and they kind of reinforced the things that I had, my research had shown. But then there were things like you talked about, like, like how important beauty is and beautification and how important that sense of identity of a community is and celebrating its history and how celebrating that history can open up a way to doing something completely new, um, but you've got to affirm the first before you can get to the second. And those are not kind of things that, you know, are easily measured with economic metrics and easily put into a strategy that, that we can use um, from a policy perspective. And so we have to know those things to know how well we're going to uh, uh, going to address them or support them. One of the things we always try to ask our guests, and I'm always interested to hear people answer this, is as an Appalachian yourself, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind when, when you hear the word Appalachia? Oh, garlic ring bologna is one of us. <laughs> I love it. It will Middlesworth barbecue potato chips is another. But anyway. <laughs> so so but that's you know, being a little bit facetious, but food is one thing. Like it, it, it you know brings to mind to me food. Um it does bring to me to mind anthracite coal, right? And that is not just a thing, yeah. but it's kind of like a how do I even say it? It's like kind of like um, you know, it's got a it's got a cultural sense to it too, right? Uh, I mean, even in the episode around Shimokin, when I talked to a couple of folks who were uh, investors there, they bought a couple of buildings. One was a person who had moved away and actually still was living away, but his parents and his siblings were still in the area, and so he was still investing back back into that town. And they talk about kind of the work ethic, the hard work the pride that those folks had in being a real central part of, of making the country, of giving the country power, enabling like the country's economy uh, because of, of how they powered the country through mining that coal and, and what it meant, how proud you felt to, to be the person, uh, to be so fundamental 
to the country's economic growth and 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 bringing prosperity to so many different people. That's kind of what I think about when I think about Appalachia is is the role that Appalachia has played in kind of the in, in the entire country's history. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And even to your title, you know, reinvent rural. You know, I feel like in Appalachia, our region, Neil and I are from southeastern Kentucky, they're often ambivalent or just resistant to change. But uh-huh. Appalachian is kind of built on, like you said, this identity, this history. It's really important to our culture. How do we reinvent rural? without disrupting this rich sense of place, of heritage that we cherish so much in Appalachia? So I think a good part of that is affirming the importance of that history and accepting that history as part of the identity of those communities. You know, communities have identities like people have identities as well. And I think we have to recognize those identities and feel as if you you don't just, you know, take off an identity and put on an identity as easy as you take a coat off or put a new coat on, right? There's a shift that needs to occur, and that shift might be a a mindset shift. And that shift's going to have to occur through working together on it and having conversations about it and being part of it and being in relationship to it rather than it happening to you from the outside, if that makes sense. Uh, So the leaders that I spoke to either in Thomas and Davis in West Virginia or in Shemokin, Pennsylvania in the podcast, they talked about being in relationship to the people in those communities. And uh, even in Shemokin, Pennsylvania, where they were, you know, they really prided themselves on that, that hard work that I just talked about and the kind of that blue collar ethos and then turning themselves into kind of a tourist destination, which seems like a completely different shift. But that tourism can also have some aspects to it that really affirm what that history was and doesn't leave it behind, doesn't say that it's something different. Like it's still gotta be part of the DNA of what you've become in some way. People have to be a part of that conversation and and also see themselves in what a town might be becoming uh, as new commerce comes in or as the industry and the economics of the place might change, I think. But you're right. And that is one of the, the, like we were talking with Neil about, it's also one of the downsides being in a small place is that change takes a while, right? Change can be, people can be skeptical about change. But I think if you've got the change along with the hope, that can actually help ease the shift. We talk about doers all the time on here, how important doers are for a community. And there was an individual in one of your episodes that talked about how she liked to get stuff done right away. And she went into it thinking that she was going to get stuff done right away. However, she learned that it takes time for this change. You know, you mentioned sense of place. You mentioned identity of how it's it's really a character in and to itself in Appalachia. We ground our podcast on place and perspective. It's really important for Neil and I. It's really important for Appalachia as a region, for rural in general, I think. Another question, I know Neil asked the Appalachia question, but another question that we ask everyone, just where, Tony, do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? 
great question. <laughs> I feel like I got a couple of homes. I mean, I have a home here outside of Washington, D.C. It's where my uh, where my kids are and where my wife is and where we reside as a family. Um, I still consider, you know, where I grew up in northeastern central Pennsylvania home. I'll often say, you know, we were we were up there in Memorial Day. I was like, uh, you know, I told my brother, I'm coming home. Uh, it just kind of <laughs> easily comes out, right? Um, but I also consider this home and, you know, and I, I'll be honest, and this is kind of the other side of Appalachia. I also consider Cincinnati a, a bit of home as well. It's where my kids were born. It's where my, my wife's parents still live and a couple of her siblings live. And so I'll, I'll make that triangle. For me, that triangle is, uh, um, is, uh, is home in some way. Thank you so much. I, I want to give you opportunity to let the listeners know. I can't, I can't recommend your podcast highly enough. Uh, I'm assuming that there might be an, a season two. I know you talked about it at the end. Maybe you can We're, help the news on yeah. Appalachian Meets World first. You heard it here first, folks, type of thing. But maybe you could tell listeners also where they can find your your podcast and your website. Well, you can find the podcast Reimagine Rural on any major platform, but you can also find it on the Brookings Institution website. Um, we've got a homepage. And in fact, the, the website has all the transcripts of it as well. So you can kind of follow along even as you're listening if you want. Um, and uh, the Reimagining Rural Policy website is uh you can find that at the brookings institution as to a second season you know i will say when i started the podcast i was just imagining a, a limited series like a one season limited series we'd go to a diverse set of places throughout the united states uh, but we've had such an positive response to it and so many people actually said oh yeah you need to come to our place you need to come to our town uh, talking about that pride in, in small town places across America. Uh, we are planning for a second season. Um, oh, it's still in the planning stages, but we're we're uh we're we're definitely at this point planning to to do a second season. It might not be until you know 2024 that we have new episodes come out. And we want to keep the distinctive flavor of the podcast, i.e you know, be visiting towns and understanding what the lifeblood of those towns are. But we also might be a little more thematic. We might, you know, look at just kind of issues that small towns are experiencing or the opportunities actually that small towns are having that we were even just talking about earlier. Might go to a place where they've got a new manufacturing plant and then understand how that came to be or, you know, maybe those wind turbines that are uh, shifting us from from an extractive to a new kind of uh, energy economy. Those are the yeah. kinds of things that we're thinking about. A lot of times things don't get done because people just don't know what they don't know. Uh, allowing yeah. people to understand best practices or to see best practices that are happening in, in communities that are similar to them is so important. And, and so you doing that in season two would be excellent. I, I do have a recommendation. I got to recommend Palmville, Kentucky. All right, in- there we go. I love breaking news here on Appalachia Meets World for a season two of Reimagining Rural. Thanks for your kind words about the podcast. And it's just been really, I've been really grateful to get the audience that we've been able to access and and to get the positive feedback uh, that we've been getting. So um, 
to your point, I think we all need to keep working together to change the narrative and change the mindset of, of when we think rural, when we think Appalachia, what comes to mind? Because what should really come to mind is innovation and resilience and culture. From my perspective, what I've experienced, and obviously this is kind of a self-selected group because I was talking to people who are really making the positive change happen in their communities, but they're better by choice. Like people are in rural America, not because there's no place else to go, but people are in rural America because they choose there. They, they choose to be in a small community because they want to be closely connected to that community. They choose to be in a less bureaucratic place because they can get <laughs> shit done. <laughs> Just, you know, they, they, they like a lot of that. They love the natural beauty and the natural assets that come along with it. And they want to protect those and conserve them. So there's a lot of positives in rural places. Not all of it's positive, and we have to recognize that and we have to deal with it. But I think we are out of balance right now with the way in which we think about rural places and, and rural Appalachia. And so uh, I hope I'm some small part of, of helping us rebalance how we ought to be thinking about it. Well, I think that's a perfect ending. And thank you again, Tony, for taking the time. We appreciate you being here, but we also appreciate all you're doing and being an evangelist for rural areas to make sure that they're not forgotten. Well, thanks for having me on and thanks for what you all are doing around Appalachia and, and getting people to see different sides and different facets of the region. So really appreciate that. Will Tony Pippa is the man. What a great story. What a great representative of Appalachia and uh, really unique, really cool uh, job that he's had for several years now. His dedication to the rural landscape is pretty impressive. Like we mentioned in the episode, if you haven't checked out Reimagining Rural, check it out. It's a, it's a good listen. But like he was talking about, you know, it's so important in regards to leveling that playing field. You know, we talk about funding all the time on here. There's an extraordinary amount of funding, like we talked about in, in the episode, coming to rural places in America. But a lot of times that funding doesn't hit the streets. And I'm glad we talked about that specifically with Tony and just to get his perspective and what we can do to really get it into the people of rural America from the ground up. Yeah, for sure. So I hope all our listeners in their spare time when they're not listening to our podcast will check out Tony's podcast. <laughs> and don't forget to also next time you're in uh, you're in uh, his neck of the woods of Appalachia, pick up some bologna. Yeah, that <laughs> ring bologna. I love that yeah. answer. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to try some of that, man. I got to be honest. Yeah, I, I, it's got a mention. I don't think we talked about it, but you remember the fried bologna that mom used to make? Oh. You got to cut the corner so it doesn't, like, you know, pop or it doesn't, like, blow up in the frying pan. Yep. The little tricks that we learned that we still oh, yeah. use today. I mean, we, we still fry some bologna here in Appalachia. And, oh, uh, oh, when's the last yeah. time you had a fried, fried bologna sandwich? You know, it's been it's been a day or so. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I ordered it at a restaurant not too long ago, Will, for lunch. Okay. Okay. Well, tell me this. Tomato and mayonnaise or mustard? What do you like on your fried bologna? I'm a mayonnaise guy, man. You know this. I'm a, With I'm tomato? A, do you yeah. have to have tomato? 
Yep, gotta have salt on the tomato. Yeah, and, that's uh, good. A little, little bit of mayonnaise on the bread. Nice. I don't know how we got redirected, but uh, anyway, <laughs> Tony Pippa, great guest, great to have on. I'm really appreciative of his his time tonight. I know how we got redirected because of his amazing answer for appetizers. Yeah. I did want to thank Tony again for being on the show. He really is a true champion for the rural landscape throughout America. If you haven't had a chance, you know, we mentioned this podcast, but also follow him on Twitter. He's always posting stories. He's always posting articles about the rural landscape and how we can better achieve equality in regards to that urban rural divide, like we've mentioned in the episode, we're much more similar than we are different. The sooner, the quicker we all realize that, the better. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Tony, being from uh, small town Appalachia, Shemokin, Pennsylvania, I wanted to shout out a local business there in Shemokin. Yeah, you got a little app biz for Shemokin. Uh, go right ahead. Yeah, let, let's talk about Tony's talked about it before. It's uh, the Heritage Restaurant there in Shemokin. It's a nice little not a restaurant pub, locally owned, community minded, customer focused, man. You can get on Facebook, check out their uh, menu. I don't see any circled bologna on there, but I'm sure I'm sure they can find you something close to that. They do have duck fat fries, so it's definitely going to be on my my item list that I that I check out next time I'm in Shemokin. So shout out to the Heritage Restaurant. That's a great pick, Neil. If you're ever near the area, check out Heritage Restaurant in Shemokin, like Neil said, but also check out the first episode of Reimagining Rural, where it talks about the coal country, the anthracite coal country in Shemokin, PA, which is where Tony's from. But it talks to the owner of Heritage. It talks about her journey from where she was moving back to Shemokin, you know, Tony talked about beautification. She really had a purpose of beautifying old buildings within her hometown. And that led to the Heritage Restaurant. So check it out. It's the first episode of Reimagining Rural by Tony Pippa. We want to thank him again for being on the show. Yes, sir. And I guess without further ado, after this extraordinary episode, we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter, the air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong. I'm in the mountains again.